Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Whether you're a skeptic or a believer, join me, Rob McConnell, as together we'll investigate the world of the paranormal and the science of parapsychology here on the Exxon Radio TV show on XZBN and the Exxon TV channel on Simul TV. Since 1990, the Exxon Radio TV show has been the place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. Together, we'll investigate UFOs, aliens, ghosts, Bigfoot, psychic phenomena, lake monsters, conspiracy theories, government cover-ups, the truth embargo, alien abductions, ESP, haunted locations from around the world, and so much more. With over 28 years of broadcasting and more than 4,500 individual guests, The X-Zone is truly a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality, as evidenced by the credibility, integrity, and professionalism of the guests that we bring to our international audience. If you have seen a UFO, had a close encounter, seen a ghost, Bigfoot, lake monster, or a story that you would like to share or have investigated, contact me, Rob McConnell by sending me your email to xzone at xzoneradiotv.com or you can call toll-free 1-800-610-7035, extension 143, and on Skype, Exxone Radio TV. For more information on the Exxon Radio TV show with yours truly, Rob McConnell, visit www.exzoneradiotv.com or www.xzonetvchannel.com or simultv.com and xzbn.net. Until next we meet here in the Exxon from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Always remember Exxon Nation. Keep your eyes to the sky and your heart in the light. Welcome to the Connecting with Coincidence radio show with Dr. Bernie Beitman, MD, bringing together the world's synchronicity experts to help you use meaningful coincidences to develop spiritually, psychologically, and practically. For more information, put Connecting with Coincidence into your web browser to find the book, website, Psychology Today blog, YouTube channel, and Facebook page. And now, here is the host of the Connecting with Coincidence radio show, Dr. Bernie Beitman, MD. Yes, yes, yes. Welcome to Connecting with Coincidence. I am your host, Dr. Bernie Beitman, MD. And today we are going into the world of serendipity. 
And we'll start off with probably the one of the most famous serendipity stories, but I'm going to tell the whole story. It's not just about one man, it's about many people. Alexander Fleming, at age 33 in 1918, was consumed with the desire to discover something that would kill those microbes that infected so many soldiers in World War I. In 1921, he, mucus from his nose dripped onto a Petri dish that had some staphylococci growing on it, and he noticed a halo of inhibition. The, the mucus had killed the bacteria. In 1928, he returned from vacation to find one Petri dish in his sink, which was clear of disinfectant. He, had, he was cultivating the unexpected by not cleaning everything right away. He saw another halo of inhibition near what was a golden mold growing around that halo of inhibition. Mold juice, he said. But he didn't make much out of it. In 1929, he presented a, a paper. Nobody paid much attention to it. And people over at Oxford, not far away from where he was working in London, were using the, his molded juice to keep petri dishes clear of contamination and people at uh, at oxford wanted to uh, develop a way of studying the structure of cell walls they had used uh, a weak thing a lysozyme but they wanted a better antibiotic and they found that right there in their own laboratory area there was the same penicillin that uh, that fleming was using they tested infected mice with this penicillin stuff had they picked guinea pigs as another important coincidence penicillin would have been would have killed the guinea pigs and nothing would have proceeded they found out yes with other tests that the penicillin worked in in stopping bacteria and so in 1941 two people flory and heatley flew to us the us which was interested in developing mass quantities of penicillin for use in World War II. They were sent to Peoria, Illinois, the Department of Agricultural Research Center there, which had large quantities of corn steep liquor, a byproduct of the manufacture of cornstarch. Corn starch. This mold thrived in this valuable nutrient, but it was the only lab that had it. In 1941, uh, then, as the United States got into World War II, they needed to make the mass quantities and look for the kind of penicillin mold that created, made lots of it. So they sent soldiers around the world to find various penicillin molds to see which one might work the best. But there it was in Peoria, Illinois. Mary Hunt, a research assistant at the lab, was walking around in the fruit market in Peoria, Illinois, and saw some yellow mold growing on some rotten ca cantaloupe, brought it in, and there, right in, right in Peoria, was what they were looking for. This mold produced the most penicillin of any of the molds they found. Three people got the Nobel Prize in 1948 for not only the discovery, but the production of penicillin. Our guest today is Samantha Copeland, who is a philosopher interested in how we come to know things, what kinds of things we know, and why we think we know them. In particular, she is interested in situations where we know something, but we don't know what that something is. For instance, how do we know when something is potentially valuable? When might it become valuable to us later, even when we don't know when or how? For this reason, she works on topics like serendipity, our discussion point for today, radical innovation and resilience. 
situations where we want to be able to prepare for the unknown. In such situations, she thinks epistemology and ethics necessarily interact. She's an assistant professor at Delft University of Technology, the largest and oldest Dutch public technology, technological university located in Delft, Netherlands. She works in the ethics philosophy of technology section of the Department of Values, Innovation and Technology. And most interesting for me and how we got connected, she is co-chair of the newly formed Serendipity Society, which brings her to this interview. Welcome to the show, Samantha. Uh, thank you, Dr. Reitman, for having me on. You're very welcome. Uh, this is a show about coincidences. What's the difference and similarity with serendipity and coincidences? Uh, well, I was thinking about it um, <laughs> in preparation for the show because often the words get banded around as though they're um, so they're the same. Uh, but one thing that a lot of the research on serendipity has revealed is that most of the time when we say something is serendipitous, we don't actually say it at the moment it happens, we say it later. So serendipity is kind of a retrospective concept. It's, it's a way of thinking about something that happened in the past in light of the value it now has for us in the present. Whereas coincidences, if you just look at the word, you have a coincidence of events, right? So this is really something that can be captured by looking at the event itself. You don't really need the trajectory of, um, the meaning can be created right then in the moment, uh, the meaningfulness of the incident, of the coincidence. Uh, whereas with serendipity, most of the time you really recognize the significance of the chance event or the coincidental happening. Um, by looking at it retrospectively. So well, didn't didn't Fleming didn't Fleming know know there was something significant at the moment he saw that halo of inhibition? Well, that's a great question. Um, so he did say something like, "That's funny," um, <laughs> and uh, and the end, what people really kind of focus on is the fact that uh, at the time that he noticed the halo of inhibition. He wasn't doing an experiment where this was a result that could be expected or even an unexpected result of a planned experiment. It was a moment during which he was chatting with people in the lab, had just returned from holiday, and was cleaning up the Petri dishes um, that had been left on his bench. And he noticed one of those Petri dishes contained this reaction. And, uh, and so he could have just thrown it away. Um, like most people might have done. And if it hadn't been Fleming who noticed it, maybe it would have been simply thrown away or cleaned and the Petri dish reused for the next set of experiments. But instead, Fleming remarked upon it and noted it and then put it aside for further investigation and asked more questions about it. Well, that can happen with coincidences too. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can have something that uh, is you note but a lot of times you have to see how it develops to see what it means. And mm -hmm. I, I don't want to get in too much into this definitional thing because mm -hmm. this whole field of coincidence study requires better definitions than we have. And this discussion begins to illustrate it as well. Uh, but uh, that's in the way you think about it, serendipity is something you, you, you figure out later. And there are a lot of coincidences that you only know that it happened later too. Coincidence is a general term and uh, I can fit serendipity within it, but that's, there's a lot of flexibility in the way we think about things. But the important thing about the Fleming and the way you think 
is that discoveries like this are not are done in a social context that there are mm -hmm. other people involved mm -hmm. and i think that's such an important contribution that you're making in trying to say that there's more than just that that single hero finding something out of the just by himself or herself yeah and i i think that uh well the the reason why I find serendipity such a cool concept is just the mere fact it exists. Like, why do we have a category that notice that makes us notice and talk about the, well, the coincidence of chance and wisdom, right? It's not just we can say somebody was lucky, but we want a whole new category, serendipity, to make sure that we highlight the fact that it wasn't just luck. It was something more than luck, right? We want to recognize the wisdom involved in that scenario. But then when we focus on one incident and one individual, it tends to make how that happened very um, very dependent on that one individual. So it, yeah, it elevates yeah. that individual to kind of a genius level, right? How to, Why right. did it happen to them and not to right. someone else? Well, they right. must be a genius. And then it becomes really inaccessible, um, not only to people trying to understand what kind of wisdom went into making this observation, but also people trying to recognize their own abilities to recognize significant chancy events. And I think that ability is far more widespread than what we would call genius. So I think the more we kind of emphasize that singular individual and we downplay the role of their place in in society. So Fleming, yes, his mold, why was it in Oxford? Because he was a recognized leader in the scientific community already, because he was a teacher, because he had other uh, colleagues in the scientific community with whom he shared things like his mold juice, which was a very handy tool at the time for clean, you know, making sure that uh, bacteria were isolated when you were experimenting with them. Yeah. And so he shared this handy tool with another lab. And that's how it wound up in the hands of Chain and Flory when they were doing their experiments. And it was just a sample picked up by them as one among many. And it proved to be extra interesting when they started to play with it. But it wasn't Fleming's insight into the potential value of penicillin as a, as a life-saving antibiotic that got it to that stage. It was his interest in it as a useful tool in science and his social role in that scientific community that contingently connected him to the long discovery process that ultimately ended up in a Nobel Prize because it ended up as such a valuable discovery. We're coming to the end of this segment. You're listening to Co Connecting with Coincidence with your host, Dr. Bernie Beitman, MD on the Exxon Broadcast, Broadcast Network. And we're talking with Samantha Copeland. It's hard to listen to the news without realizing we're living in volatile, unprecedented times. Yet never has there been such an opportunity to transform the human condition. As old structures fail, where can we find the guidance to co-create a better way? Find Your Path Home is an ever-evolving, leading-edge information, education, and healing resource center designed to support and guide you on your path to unity and enlightenment. Based on sound principles employed by shaman worldwide, we provide techniques that can support you through the current transitions, offering online shamanic classes, 
international long-distance shamanic healing sessions, complimentary Mission Evolution radio episodes and Stairway to Heaven TV vignettes, seminars, retreats, and much more. All of this can be found on findyourpathhome.com. So I was watching the X-Zone TV channel last night when I was abducted by aliens and they kept repeating to me over and over again, simultv.com, simultv.com. What's simultv.com? That's what I asked them. They had it written on the side of their UFO. How do you spell that? UFO. No, I mean simultv.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Right. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Interesting that you were abducted by aliens in a simultv.com UFO last night. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Now that you mention it, I remember now last night, I was awakened from a deep sleep. My great-grandmother was standing there. She said she'd come from the hereafter to tell me about simultv.com. She even spelled it out for me. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, sonny boy. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, sonny boy. Wow. Yeah. Guys, you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. SIMULTV.com. Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of course. We all know about SIMULTV.com. SIMULTV.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to CC with BB. I'm your host, Dr. Bernie Biteman, MD. We are talking with philosopher Samantha Copeland about serendipity. And one of the things... I heard you mention, um, Samantha, is how us ordinary people can also be serendipity people, too, that we can develop our own serendipity capacities. Could you define serendipity for us and tell us how that our, our listeners might be able to develop their own capacities? Well, uh, the definition of serendipity is as much discussed in my field as coincidences are in yours, I'm sure. Um, so it's a, it can be a very broad category. At one point, I decided there needed to be three factors involved um, that you needed. Uh, something that was unexpected, and I'll talk a bit more about why I focus on unexpected rather than chance. Um, and something that required a certain amount of perception or knowledge to observe or n recognize. And also you need a valuable outcome. The one thing about serendipity is that it really is only used to describe things that ended up being valuable to someone or to everyone. Um, so you don't use it used, you know, unlucky things or things that people were wise enough and then used, you know, for the use their powers for evil instead of good. They don't get called serendipitous. Um, so, so those are three factors that tend to be at play whenever we say this is a case of serendipity. Uh, as far as the skills go that are involved, it's at least as much about uh, the conditions in which someone is recognizing and um, having their expectations overturned and valuable outcomes are coming about as it is about the individuals that are doing the recognizing. Um, so what do I mean by this? Uh, some serendipity research talks about um, filters, for example. So uh, Abigail McBurney has this great study where she looks at people who can recall in their past moments that could have been serendipitous, but didn't end up 
resulting in a valuable outcome because they had certain pressures um, upon them. So they were filtering out the potential value of an unexpected observation or event because they were too busy on some other project or because they didn't have the support to pursue that new direction in their research or because they didn't have the time. Um, and some of them put it on the back shelf for a while, which is such an important thing. Um, uh, Dr. Garud talks about the story of 3M and the post-it notes. I'm sure you've you've heard this story as being an example of serendipity, where the glue that was found seemed to have no purpose because it didn't stick to anything. And then they found a purpose in the post-it note, and it became their most world-renowned product um, of the company. But that discovery took, it sat in the the memory and got recycled through the memory of that company for a long period of time before someone connected its properties with its use. And so memory actually plays a key role in a lot of serendipitous processes as well. So equally important to noticing something that might be valuable in the future um, and is very unexpected is also getting it to the right place and right channel for it to be taken down a road of discovery. Um, and so that's where uh, your place in society really tends to play a role. What kind of resources do you have? Um, have you been taught how to disseminate the observations that you make in ways that they then get picked up by the right people? Are you taken seriously enough as someone who made an observation of potential value so that people trust you and take up that observation and do the work that needs to be done to bring it into a process of discovery? And uh, that not only makes a difference to whether the discovery actually happens, it makes a difference as to whether people call it serendipity. And it also makes a big difference as to who gets called serendipitous. Does that and make I, sense? I, oh, yeah, it's great. It's great. Um, the, this, the, elaborate on the expectation thing. Okay. And, and um, expectation and chance. Right. Uh, so chance and randomness tend to be thought of as uh, what we would call ontological concepts in philosophy, whereas expectation is something we would call an epistemological concept. So... And chance and and, uh, and randomness are the kinds of things, they're properties that belong to the world out there. Whether somebody notices them or not, they would still be by chance or they would still be random. This is often how they're how they're thought of. And I really think randomness definitely fits into that category. Chance tends to be a bit borderline. Um, depending on who you're talking to and when, they can think of it as ontological or epistemological. So I go right to the epistemological side, which is about knowledge and about the knowledge that we have. And one of the coolest things about serendipity, and I think one of the reasons why it captures people's imagination and they want to tell stories about serendipitous discoveries is because they mark a point in our history when our expectations have been overturned. We suddenly see a new source of knowledge or a new way of looking at things or a new way of looking at even people or relationships we've had or choices that we made in the past. And we think of them in a new light, given the value we now recognize they had. And that, that turning over of expectations, I think, is, is what we as a culture want to highlight when we have a category like serendipity. I think that's the... That's the wisdom aspect that people really are attracted to. It's not that someone had this genius 
ability to recognize things that none of us could. It's that that someone had their own expectations overturned about where they would find the most valuable knowledge. I thought it also had something to do with the, the culture in which the per, that person's expectations is are embedded. Can you say a bit more about that? That that there's the, a person with an expectation, uh, and I, I have to back up on this because um, Fleming, to keep our example going, uh, expected that it was possible to find an antibiotic that was better than the sulfur drugs that were around. Ooh, but so, not at the time he made his observations. The sulfanamides were only just coming into their being at that point in time. So this was not a common trope when Fleming first made his observation. Years later, uh, only a dozen years later, when Florian Chain were doing their experiments, they had experienced the sulfanamides. So there was an expectation in the broader culture that you could have a drug that could help you with infections in the way that the sulfanamides did. But Fleming had just an inkling, maybe, of that possibility. What he was working on were vaccines, which were slightly different, and bacteriophages were the, the popular thing at that time. So. So you could argue that Fleming's expectations, I did I did like that you brought up lysozyme and his experience with the nose drip, <laughs> because he did have this expectation that something like that, a compound like that could be produced by the human body. Um, and if it could be produced by the human body, then it could also not harm the human body. And that was the kicker point about penicillin, right? It was a non-lethal antibacterial substance. Whereas before that, they mostly were dealing with um, antiseptics, which were quite harsh yes. on the human body, right? So, yes. but Fleming didn't have a doctor on staff. He didn't have the resources um, to work with that kind of substance. And the director of his hospital wasn't exactly encouraging um, for him to move in that direction at that time because vaccines were the promising thing. So that's what they were focusing on. So, so the expectations can be very local and contextual as well, right? Yeah, I, I missed, uh, I, I mean, I was comparing the self- to, to the sulfur drugs, uh, and I forgot it's, it was the harsh uh, antiseptics that mm -hmm. uh, that were being used. But he, but what I read, and you know better than I, uh, was that Fleming wanted to find something better than those harsh antiseptics to help kill those microbes. So he thought mm. it might be possible to do that, and so I, I was I thought that his expectation was already there that it was possible to find a, a better way of knocking out those microbes. He was looking for that, but he was looking for it in the vaccines. So he really saw penicillin, or as he called it, his mold juice, um, as, a, as a really good tool for, yes, that ambition, but not in itself the means by which he could reach that goal. Um, now, he did have one little note at the very oh, end of the article he published. Yeah, that, I, that I didn't know. That I didn't no, know. Okay. There's one little note at the end of the article he published about it that's suggests he had an inkling of the possibility, but there was no way he could, he, he was not able himself to do the kinds of tests that would have shown it's not harmful. Um, it, it was a non-harmful antibacterial yeah. substance you could ingest. Um, well, he tried a few things like putting stuff in people's eyes because of the lysozyme experience, uh -huh. um, but he would never have guessed that it was as great a medical tool as it turned out to be, oh, yeah. right? Um, so, so you know, how much inkling do you have to have? I'm not really sure. Um, I think uh, if it weren't for Florian Chain picking it up, Fleming himself probably would never have gone back to no, penicillin. I, 
Absolutely. And that's why I like to emphasize Florian Chain uh, in this chain of events, uh, because it's not just Fleming. He needed to have them to be able to, to make it happen. What, what about, uh, as we come to the end, near the end of this, what about the fact that uh, at, in, at Oxford they chose to use mice rather than guinea pigs? If they would have used guinea pigs, that probably wouldn't have happened either. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a nice example of something that is, uh, you know, could be seen as serendipitous. There's a million points in this discovery process of penicillin where you could say it was serendipity, it was coincidence. It's an amazing story for that reason. Um, and this is definitely one of those points. I mean, because this was just a routine test, right? Yeah, All they wanted yeah. to do was test, they were testing for toxicity. Yes. And ultimately, what they did was fail their test. They they were trying to kill the mice, <laughs> but they were they they wouldn't the mice didn't die, and so they had to take another look at this drug that was actually failing the test that they were performing with it at the time, which is a really interesting scientific twist of of fate, right? Yes, yes, it is, and we're coming to the end of this segment. It's very very good, very interesting. You're listening to Connecting with Coincidence. Your host, Dr. Bernie Beitman, M.D. on the Exxon Broadcast Network. Our guest is Samantha Copeland, and we are taking apart serendipity. They're here, and they've been here for thousands of years, making their presence known in the shadows. They might be seen by a lonely motorist on a deserted road late at night, or by a frightened and confused husband in the bedroom he is sharing with his wife. But who are they? What do they want? Why are they here? Perhaps most concerning, has the government been aware of their presence all along? The new book by Ellie Marzulli, UFO Disclosure, The 70-Year Cover-Up Exposed, delves into the world of UFOs. Can full disclosure be soon? Order now and receive a free hour and 37-minute DVD on the UFO phenomenon, UFOs Are Real. Get both the book and the DVD, a $40 value, for only $19.99. To order your book and DVD today, go to lamarzuli.net. That's L-A-M-A-R-Z-U-L-L-I.net. Rob McConnell here, presenting an overview for Nicholas Paul Jennings, author of a fascinating book, Amen. It presents facts revealed by Egyptologists, facts that enable us to understand why Amen is the beginning of creation of God. It provides recommendations for religious leaders of the major religions to unify their beliefs and teach the Word of God, love one another. Amen informs people how mankind conceived God. It was the Egyptians that developed the concepts of a soul, a hereafter, and son of God, and finally, after the worship of many gods, they conceived the belief in one universal God, the maker of all there is. For more information, visit www.futureofgodamen.com. That's www.future... The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your Quarter Pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Of God, amen.com.
You have heard of the X-Zone? Now watch it on Simo TV, plus 500 video games, live TV channels, free video on demand, worldwide, and more. Does this sound like tomorrow's television? Well, it is, but you can have it today, right now. It is Simul TV. Simul TV offers what the others only wish they could provide. 15 exclusive channels like X-Zone, Sci-Fi, and Horror. We are worldwide. No other provider offers that. 500 built-in video games. No need to have an extra expensive system. We have them included. Free video on demand. Live streaming events from around the world. Interactive online network and much more. Tomorrow's TV today. Simul TV. Sound too good to be true? Well, it's not. You can have Simul TV today. Sign up at simultv.com. Do it today. Welcome back to CC with BB, Connecting with Coincidence. I'm your host, Dr. Bernie Beitman, MD. We are talking with Samantha Copeland, philosopher in the Netherlands, about serendipity. And we're, we're getting into the whole story of Alexander Fleming and penicillin and the other people who were involved in making penicillin happen. Uh, what about... What about the referral to uh, Peoria, Illinois, where they had that corn steep liquor? Uh, from what I read, that it, there was not a good reason for it. There must have been. But why did they go there? Because And that's such a great place, such a great substance to grow penicillin. I actually don't want to commit to a fact on that one. I'm not sure what the reasoning was. I think it was just about the money. I think that's that's who was funding it was the labs in Peoria, and oh, that's that, where yeah I think yeah, that's I, it. <laughs> but I, think I don't it want was, to commit. I think it, I think it was that. I, yeah. I think it was something that was, let me call it random or chance or whatever mm. word we're going to use here, and that's the sort of thing that I look for. Uh, and when I look at coincidences, that here was a need to find uh, a substance in which the mold could grow well, and. For some reason that we can't really find, uh, it happened to be in Peoria, Illinois. And that, that's, that's where it's a little more mysterious in the kinds of things that I, I study, along with serendipity, that how did that happen? Also, also the, that moldy Mary, that the mm -hmm. lab assistant could wander around in the fruit market in Peoria and find what they were looking for is an illustration of an old, an ancient wisdom idea that you can travel the world where, uh, looking for what you want, and there it is right under your doorstep. Hmm. Yeah. What do you, what do you make? Mary is a, is a great case. I like, to, I like to bring her up because if you Please look do. at it, uh, if you look at it strictly, what, what did Fleming do that made him you know, win a Nobel Prize, and you look at what Moldy Mary did, there's really <laughs> not a lot of difference. <laughs> um, they both happened to be in the right place at the right time and also had the wisdom to recognize what they were seeing as being significant for what they were doing somewhere else at the time, right? Um, and then they both picked up what they were looking at and they followed through with it and got it to the right channels so that it could affect the discovery process in a very significant way. Um, you could argue that without Moldy Mary, we wouldn't have penicillin today any more than we wouldn't have it without Fleming, right? Both of them are equally contingently and equally important 
to the process of discovery as it played out in history. And yet, Fleming has a Nobel Prize and Mary has a rather unattractive nickname. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so, so I like to use this to highlight the, the significance of the context in which these things happen to how to whether or not we call this a, a wise thing. There's no treatise on the kind of wisdom Mary Hunt must have had to recognize the cantaloupe for its significance, right? There's no investigation into her wisdom, her creativity, her, her methods of shopping at the market that might have contributed <laughs> to her ability to notice that cantaloupe at that time. But we hear a lot about Fleming's, how, he, how tidy he kept his lab or didn't. You know, we hear a lot about how open-minded he was and how humble he was. And all of these characteristics of Fleming <laughs> play out throughout the history and, and are really fully developed. But Mary is just moldy Mary Hunt, right? And we don't hear anything more about her than the fact that she picked up the cantaloupe and brought it back to the lab, right? And, and that's just, a, that is time and place and attention that we pay to people and to the kinds of characteristics they bring to the plate for these kinds of incidences. Um, so she's a great example for my purposes, <laughs> yeah. Oh, she is. Yeah, she is. I, I mean, you've clarified it for me here. I, I've always liked that, um, but I liked the Moldy Mary story um, partly because um, she knew what everybody else was looking for around the world. So she mm. had some idea. Uh, she was informed. She had sagacity. She had mm -hmm. wisdom. Mm -hmm. She knew what she knew what everybody else was looking for. And why? Yeah, why she went to the to the fruit market. I mean, that mm -hmm. the way people analyze Fleming's behavior, nobody did with her. Those are right. wonderful questions. But my question is, how did that cantaloupe mold show up right where they needed it? <laughs> well, this is a... Oh, I won't be able to quote it correctly, but uh, Philip Nichols has a nice way of pointing out that when we look back on a discovery process, we tend to highlight specific moments as being very significant and meaningful. But really, and the cool thing about looking at serendipity stories for me has been that you can you can place that moment in different places along that historical trajectory, depending on your own personal focus. Um, and also just with personal uh, instances of serendipity. So from my own past, right? I can look at a past coincidence as being highly significant given what I know now about it. Or I could focus on a different moment in chance and they happen to be upstairs from the philosophy. Um, I'm getting feedback, sorry. Uh, the, they happen to be upstairs in the philosophy department. And next thing you know, a few years later, I'm enrolled in a PhD, and now here I am, Dr. Copeland in the Netherlands, right? But I could trace it back to a moment even before that if I wanted to. I could trace it back to the moment that I met my partner in a restaurant in Toronto, which that then led to me being in Halifax in the first place. Or I could trace it <laughs> to even further back to the coincidence of being born into a family with parents who encouraged me to pursue unusual avenues of education and travel. So I really find it's a, it's an interesting exercise to play, to look back on a process of discovery or creation or development and to kind of pick out the significant moments. And depending on how much control you feel you had over the decisions being made at that time, the more significant chance will or won't be in relation to the choices you made, right? Um, 
in it, it has to do with how important you think the relationships are that you had at that time. How important you think uh, your own decisions were in uh, compared to the context you happen to be in, right? And uh, and so. This is why I kind of stay away from chance because I find chance one of those concepts that it really depends on your focus as to how chancy something might seem rather than anything inherent in the conditions. Well, the, the chance, chance is such a difficult concept, I think, mm -hmm. um, particularly because it has two meanings. It it's, seems to come out of something random, perhaps, but mm -hmm. also chance is an opportunity. Give peace a chance. So mm -hmm. ch chance has that bifurcated or double yeah. meaning that goes in two different directions. And I like that it has both, even though they're kind of, uh, they, they almost seem contradictory, although they certainly aren't. But when I go back to Moldy Mary, when we talk about chance and coincidence, what's the chance that they ended mm -hmm. up in Peoria, <laughs> where the mold liquor, where the liquor was that the mm -hmm. mold really liked, and the and the best mold that they could find was there in Peoria. Those are low probability events, and I yeah. and I and I look at those as low probability events, and those are the ones that catch my attention in the study of coincidences. And so I start, I look at I look at coincidences. You know, you know, Magda Osman in London in, in England who studies coincidences also. I'm sorry, no. Uh, well, she's, she talks about co the study of coincidences generally as a, a rational process by mm -hmm. which discovery is made, mm -hmm. that we, we see two events coming together in a strange way. It captures our attention, mm -hmm. and we try to fi figure out how it happened. Yeah. And it's, not, it's, it's, it's somewhat different from serendipity, but it's still in the same general area. It's a way of discovering new knowledge, of creating new knowledge. So when... When this is where I think attention is such an important word. Attention is there, such right? an important word. It's oh, what yeah. we are attending to. Yes. Becomes, we see it as significant because it catches our attention, because it yes. calls us to attend to it. Yes, yes. Um, and, and yes, there are definitely things in the, in the, there are very low probability that happen to happen. But what I find really interesting is to contrast that with a, what if that hadn't happened? Would we have attended as much to the, the difficulty they had with finding that mold. If it, do you know what I mean? Like, would we, it wouldn't have caught our attention in the same way. And so these, I, I think that the, the important thing about that, those kinds of low probability things that do happen is that they do call us to attend to them. They catch yes. our attention in that way. But I think that that in itself is the significance. Um, what do you mean so, that, that in itself is the significance? Well, again, I think it's an epistemological rather than an ontological issue, right? It has to do with our expectations. Uh, how does it catch our attention? Because they came together in an unexpected way. Yes, now, if, yes, if yes. we, you know, the sun coming up in the morning doesn't catch our attention because it, it happens all the time. It's not like we wake up and go, oh, the sun came up today. Today is going to be a special day, right? It's like, oh, you know, if you if you really are the kind of person to question whether it will come up, you might think, oh, thank God, the sun came up again today. But <laughs> it doesn't like drive your attention towards I, you. I put together low pro it. low probability with unexpected. Mm, mm. 
I, I make a relative equivalence between the two. I'm, we can find the differences, but low probability and unexpected go together for me. And what Magda mm -hmm. Osmond was trying to talk about is that when you get these low probability events that grab your attention, that our brains are, are, to are tuned to find oddities, to look for anomalies and try to mm -hmm. see what's going on. Is something bad, something good? So when we see a low probability unexpected event, we look at it to try to see if it suggests some underlying principle of reality that we haven't yet understood. Right. So I don't think I would connect those necessarily because I think there's lots of low probability things that don't catch our attention. And I think there's lots of high probability things that may nevertheless be unexpected. And let's let, what's expected is we've come to the end of this segment. You're listening <laughs> to Connecting with Coincidence with your host, Dr. Bernie Biden, MD on the Exxon Broadcast Network. We're talking to Samantha Copeland, philosopher, serendipity person. here and they've been here for thousands of years making their presence known in the shadows. They might be seen by a lonely motorist on a deserted road late at night or by a frightened and confused husband in the bedroom he is sharing with his wife. But who are they? What do they want? Why are they here? Perhaps most concerning, has the government been aware of their presence all along? The new book by Ellie Marzulli, UFO Disclosure, The 70-Year Cover-Up Exposed, delves into the world of UFOs. Can full disclosure be soon? Order now and receive a free hour and 37-minute DVD on the UFO phenomenon, UFOs Are Real. Get both the book and the DVD, a $40 value, for only $19.99. To order your book and DVD today, go to lamarzuli.net. That's L-A-M-A-R-Z-U-L-L-I.net. So I was watching the X-Zone TV channel last night when I was abducted by aliens and they kept repeating to me over and over again, Simultv.com, Simultv.com. What's Simultv.com? That's what I asked them. They had it written on the side of their UFO. How do you spell that? UFO. No, I mean Simultv.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Right. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Interesting that you were abducted by aliens in a Simultv.com UFO last night. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Now that you mention it, I remember now last night, I was awakened from a deep sleep. My great-grandmother was standing there. She said she'd come from the hereafter to tell me about Simultv.com. She even spelled it out for me. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, sonny boy. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, sonny boy. Wow. Yeah. Guys, you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. SIMULTV.com. Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of course. We all know about SIMULTV.com. SIMULTV.com. Welcome back to CC with BB. I'm your host, Dr. Bernie Biteman, MD. We're talking to Samantha Copeland. Samantha, I, I love 
talking to your philosophical mind. Uh, it's like it's really interesting because you can just take things apart and go in different directions. And I've tried to read what chance means in the Stanford dictionary or encyclopedia of philosophy what is chance what is explanation what is cause i don't get it they, they they can't tell me it's really hard because there's so many different variations you can do on a theme mm -hmm. and what we just talked about is low pro there are low probability events we don't pay attention to there are high probability events that mean a lot um and that's i think that's all true but when i when I look at coincidences, I got to be a little simpler. I'm a psychiatrist. I got to be practical. Uh, I take care of patients. I give people medications. I do psychotherapy. I've got to limit the, the scope of what I look at in a kind of a pragmatic way. And so when I say low probability events catch our attention, that means that to me that we got to, we, we, there may be something, and this was Magda Osmond trying to suggest, there may be something there for us to look at that we hadn't thought there might be before. Yes. And, and that's what I mean about expectations being overturned. I mean, epi epistemic expectations, expectations about where our knowledge is going to come from or where our insight is going to come from at all. And, and that's where Fleming's expectations were turned over when he saw the lysozyme effect from his nasal drippings mm -hmm. and when he saw the fungus. But I love that Mary, that, that Mary, Mary Hunt thing, too. But let's go on to a different, different uh, question for you. Um, you have formed the Serendipity Society, and that's how I, I was surprisingly happy to find that it <laughs> exists. Um, what are you trying? What is the Serendipity Society, and what are you trying to have happen with it? And what's going to happen in London in uh, September fourth and fifth this year? Ooh, uh, well, what's going to happen in London is still very much up to Serendipity itself. So uh, <laughs> we are <laughs> we are only in the early stages of planning, but I'm hoping it will be the first. Uh, grand international and multidisciplinary <laughs> meeting of uh, of people who are working on issues around and on gaining a better understanding of what serendipity is and what kind of role it plays in the in the progress of knowledge in our methods of research in people's daily lives. There are developmental psychologists working on this issue. Um, there are information scientists working on it. There are computer scientists. There's human computer behavior people, digital humanities people, library people. Um, and philosophers, epistemologists, uh, people working on issues in perception, and people working on science and the philosophy and the empirical reality of science and just how much chance and serendipity plays a role in our scientific progress. And if it does play a huge role, how do we fund things like research projects? So all of this is happening all around the world right now. It's a, it's a huge emerging field, I like to think of it. Um, and people are more and more daring to come out and saying that they research serendipity because previously in the past and still sometimes you get a kind of reaction where it's like, yeah, but that's just luck, right? And uh, and so what's the point in trying to understand it? We can't make it happen anyway. But more and more people believe that there are things we can do to encourage serendipity or to cultivate it, some people say. Um, and because of this, uh, by, uh, by chance, <laughs> I happened to complete my dissertation at Dalhousie University. And then when I began my postdoc in Norway with the Cause Health Project, I finally had a chance to get back into some of the literature I'd had to put to the side so I could finish my dissertation. And some of that literature was written by Laurie McKay-Pete. 
who I found out was a Dalhousie. And I hadn't known that while I was a Dalhousie. I hadn't realized she had been, she was a major figure in information sciences working on serendipity, just, you know, a few buildings down from me. And she had finished her dissertation the year before I'd finished mine. And so on a trip home, I called her up um, and said, do you want to have coffee? We really should have done this at some point, but let's do it now because I'm going to be in Halifax and you're still there. And while we were talking, we realized that we had had a bit of a hard slog of working through all of the, the fluff about serendipity out there and newspaper articles and people just sharing anecdotes and getting to the point where we were like, there's really good good research being done out here. There's really thorough, thoughtful, and deep level research on serendipity, when it happens, who it happens to, how it happens, what are the conditions for it. And getting to that research can take a bit of work. So we started off with the idea of a resources page and maybe a society of people who are also interested. And it's just kind of been a rolling ball of interest that people are picking up on it and, and uh, coming to me like you did um, out of the ether, one might say, uh, saying, I'm really interested in serendipity and I would love to be part of this network. So we've been working on expanding our network and increasing opportunities for shared resources among members. And uh, and now I'm this workshop slash conference we're going to have in September is uh, the first time that we're going to try and get a number of members together to kind of talk really seriously about where this research is going. Um, can we do things like define serendipity or set out some common features that we've all identified in all of our different disciplines? Are there research directions that we should be pursuing as a group together? And uh, where does this field need to go? Where where does the synchronicity play a role in your thinking or not? Um, it doesn't really. And I had a really nice footnote that I meant to study before I did this interview and I forgot. Um, <laughs> but uh, synchronicity is... is uh, it has, it has to do with simultaneity, right? So when something happens and you feel a sense of synchronicity, it's the concept is identifying a feeling that what's happening right now is a bringing together of things in a really significant way. But it's very much, again, like I said, an in-the-moment recognition. I don't think synchronicity has the same kind of retrospectivity that you were saying coincidences can have, and, and I, I, I think serendipity most often has. Um, so synchronicity, I think, really is a, is a feeling about what's happening right now. Am, am I wrong about that? You're partially correct about it. And okay. that, is, uh, that, that is the Jung's original definition. And part of the fun of what I'm doing is uh, recognizing that Jung used the word synchronicity in several different ways. Uh, and, and the biggest problem was not only was synchronicity used to describe a phenomenon, something like what you described, but more, but also as a theory about how these, these things happen. And that right. got confusing to have an explanation be also the name of the phenomenon itself. <laughs> but now the word synchronicity has gotten very much expanded, enough so that uh, one of the people on the show in Germany is looking at how people in psychotherapy define, both patient and therapist, define synchronicity. The term has got become so flexible <laughs> that 
people use it in lots of different ways, including a retrospective way of looking at things. Okay. Uh, it, it happened, this happened, but then you only find out later what the significance of the event that was earlier might have been. So that, and sometimes they're, they're years later, uh, which is kind of uh, an, an interesting but rare form of this, that looking back, you see what something actually meant, as well as like with Fleming, you find something that happened, but then it evolves with other people and other experiences, and you see also what that original thing meant. Yeah. I use the word coincidence to cover a lot of these events. What I like so much about what you're doing and your colleagues are doing is it's within academia now. I was a chairman of a psychiatry department. I did a lot of research in chest pain and panic disorder. I respect research capacities. And I'm trying to envelop the field and see what's within it and take different parts from it and try to say what we really have here. And that includes starting with what do we mean by the various terms that we're mm. using. It's so important to get the right terms. And synchronicity cover and now covers a lot of different things that includes serendipity uh, in the way uh, I think people use the term. I think the way we use words is really interesting, very, and uh, and I and I do think that they mark out um, concepts that they mark out things that we want to be able to identify in the world, right? We want yes. to, we need a name yes. for that thing yes. because we yes. think it's important, and so yeah. we we use a name that might already exist to label it, or we invent a name as a Walpole did with serendipity, right? To right. label something and to to be able to point to it when it happens. Yes. Um, but there's another S word that gets underplayed a lot that I want to I want to work with a bit more in the future, and that's salience. And uh, and this is this is something that I think really it's a word that focuses more on what happens in the now, right? Why do we recognize these things at all? Why do we even pay attention to them when they do happen? Because we might not see the value of uh, an unexpected observation until later, but we still had to observe it amongst right. all the other things we could right. observe. Yeah. And we had to take note of it and make space for it in our brain and hold yeah. on to it for a period. Yeah. So so there's potential value that we're recognizing there. And, and I think that there's... There's stuff going on in the way we look at the world and the way we recognize things in the world and with the way we learn from each other and through our education that enables us to recognize potential value too, right? It's something that we are able to identify. This might be useful later, you know? And, uh, and there's a difference between the person who has a, a drawer full of potentially useful tools and a hoarder, right? <laughs> in one case, you can go back and find the tools and then use them when you need them. And in the other case, it's about just keeping everything. And, uh, and we don't, in serendipity, and I think in these retrospective ideas about synchronicity, it's not everything that's been kept. It's some things that have been kept. And that we later... somehow we recognize somehow that there might be some value to it, and that's what you're mm -hmm. trying to. That's what you're trying to play att more attention to. That S. Yeah. What, what I what I and we're coming right to the end of this. I also look at mystery as explanations. That is, we don't understand how things happened, mm -hmm. like the like the the corn liquor and Peoria and the cantaloupe uh, being where it needed to be. That's what I look at. But we'll come to the end of this program. Thank you, Samantha. Very much glad to have you on the show. You've been listening to Connecting with Coincidence. I'm your host, Dr. Bernie Beitman, MD, and thank you, Samantha Copeland, for being on the show.
If you are looking for a safe, zero-calorie, natural option to the harmful artificial sweeteners on the market today, Just Like Sugar is what you're looking for. Just Like Sugar is a wonderful natural alternative for those health-conscious people who choose a calorie-restricted diet with a great, pure, sweet flavor that tastes just like sugar. Just Like Sugar is a great natural option for people suffering from diabetes and may be useful in restricted diet programs where standard sugars are not allowed and does not cause a laxative effect of some other sweeteners. Just Like Sugar comprises a perfect blend of chicory root fiber, natural calcium, natural vitamin C, and Just Like Sugar sweetness comes from the natural flavors from the peel of the orange. Just Like Sugar is a natural alternative to harmful artificial sweeteners and will change the way that you believe all natural sweetener products taste. Just Like Sugar is available at your local Whole Foods markets, Wild Oats markets, Henry's, Sun Harvest, and many other fine natural food stores in the U.S., Canada, and worldwide. They are here, and they've been here for thousands of years, making their presence known in the shadows. They might be seen by a lonely motorist on a deserted road late at night, or by a frightened and confused husband in the bedroom he is sharing with his wife. But who are they? What do they want? Why are they here? Perhaps most concerning, has the government been aware of their presence all along? The new book by Ellie Marzulli, UFO Disclosure, The 70-Year Cover-Up Exposed, delves into the world of UFOs. Can full disclosure be soon? Order now and receive a free hour and 37-minute DVD on the UFO phenomenon, UFOs Are Real. Get both the book and the DVD, a $40 value, for only $19.99. To order your book and DVD today, go to lamarzuli.net. That's L-A-M-A-R-Z-U-L-L-I.net. You have heard of the X-Zone? Now watch it on Simultv, plus 500 video games, live TV channels, free video on demand, worldwide, and more. Does this sound like tomorrow's television? Well, it is, but you can have it today, right now. It is Simul TV. Simul TV offers what the others only wish they could provide. 15 exclusive channels like X-Zone, Sci-Fi, and Horror. We are worldwide. No other provider offers that. 500 built-in video games. No need to have an extra expensive system. We have them included. Free video on demand live streaming events from around the world, interactive online network, and much more. Tomorrow's TV today, Simul TV. Sound too good to be true? Well, it's not. You can have Simul TV today. Sign up at simultv.com. Do it today. <laughs> 